Thank you very much, Mia. That's very <coughs> kind of you to say all those nice words. Anyway, uh, thank you guys for coming. And uh, I see some very familiar faces here, which is good. And uh, so I would like to talk about uh, this topic here, which you see in front of you. Uh, the title is quite a long one. If I publish this paper, it will be, I think, the longest title I'll ever published. So under these conditions, we shall work better together. That's the starting point. So what am I looking at? I would like to look at the collaboration between the CEO and the board chair. Right? Collaboration or maybe no collaboration between the two. So this is uh, part and parcel of a big research theme that, I, that I'm engaging for the next five years. So this is the beginning of a research project that is going to go for five years, which tries to understand uh, these guys who, if you like, sit around the board, right? So you've got the non-executive directors on one side, you've got the, uh, sorry, non-executive directors that side, the executive directors this side, you've got the chair at the top, that's the chairperson or chair lady or chairman, whatever it is, and you've got the CEO who is receiving information from all sorts of directions. So I would like to look at the relationships of these guys in a much more detailed way. Now, one of the challenges of trying to understand issues in corporate governance is that it is about the board of directors, right? But we do know that the board of directors is a very secret organization. Secret in the sense that you can't have access to what exactly they talk about during the meetings, right? It will be very, very rare if anyone can allow you to walk into their rooms and say, I would like to listen to what you're going to discuss. I'm sure you can understand why. It is possibly because you may be spying on a competitor, or maybe they have certain information that when it goes out, when it leaks out, it may affect the way investors think about that company, and then they end up losing value in terms of share, share, share price going down, and so forth and so forth. Or it could be strategic, that they don't want you to know about exactly what they do. So to try and understand the relationship of these guys has been a very difficult issue in, in research. We have struggled to understand how they, they work. So what we have done in the past as academics has been to try and use what we call proxies. So you, 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 you think, for example, if you want to say, do these guys talk to each other? Uh, do, they, do they have independent people who really do their job? So we count how many non-executive directors are uh, in, the, in the boardroom, and then we, we create a, a proportion and say, well, if there's more, maybe there is, there is more of that control. You understand what I'm saying? So, but that is not the real thing. This is an approximation of what you think happens. But what actually happens in there, no one knows. So one of the things I've done over the years, actually the last four or five years, I've tried a way to really get into the boardroom in a very indirect way. I'll tell you what I've done. I've begun to recruit PhD students who are executive directors and those who are non-executive directors. So in a way, I can have them in my office and we can talk about the things that they talk about in, in, in their companies. That has been one of the strategies I've been using. So I've got four students <coughs> at the moment. And so how do I get these guys? Well, I meet them in conferences. 
I meet them in different places and I persuade them, like, look, you look very smart. How, why don't you do a PhD, you know? This would help you. And some of them have actually bought into the idea. And it's working well for them, and now it works well for me. And uh, at one point, we wanted to do a paper. In fact, this one here, I'm actually working with my, one of my PhD students who is actually a, a non-executive director. And I tell you what, he, he has got this strong network of friends. So he has approached them and said, well, can I get this, can I get that? So that's one way I'm trying to get into that. Anyway, let's go back to the paper. So it is about this whole big project, which, which I would like to work on. And, and uh, when we do research work, we have the chance to apply for what we call research grants. So I'm going to apply for a big research grant, probably about 300,000 pounds or 400,000. Then I can recruit some PhD students. I can recruit some research assistants. Then we try to really do a good job around it. But today, we would like to look specifically at these two here. So I should say right from the beginning, I don't have the data yet. We are collecting the data. So what I'm talking about today is really a theoretical view of my thinking of exactly what I need to do, all right? So that's what I will take you through in this, in this talk. If at any point you want to ask a question, something is not very clear, please feel, feel free to, to ask. It's a very informal discussion. So the starting point is, uh, let me also give a bit of a background here. If we talk about the positions of the CEO and chairman in the UK, they're separate positions, right? The UK has what we call a separate CEO and chairman. In the United States, they have a president who combines the two roles in one, one individual, right? So he does the job of the CEO, does the job of the chairman. So he sets the agenda and everything. So, but in this case, uh, we are looking at the case of separating. So I started by saying, to separate or not to separate? That is the question. You know Shakespeare? I'm drawing from Shakespeare there. So the question is, do you separate or do you not separate the roles of the CEO chair? Now, let's assume you do separate. So if you do separate, what are the advantages, right? So we are told that the board chair has the role of checking on what the CEO does. So if you separate the roles, we improve the governance because at least there are balance and checks in position, right? So those are the, the advantages that scholars who have looked at the idea of separating the CEO and chair have found. But there are also strong arguments for the US approach where they combine the two. So they say, no, it's actually cost-effective. Why pay two individuals when you can pay one, right? That's one. And secondly, you can also make decisions much faster. You don't have to consult another guy, so shall we do this, and maybe the guy has flown somewhere else, you have to wait for him to come back. You get the point? So you just decide, let's do it. It makes sense in a, in a business environment where quick decisions have to have to be made, particularly <coughs> our, the times we're living now. Things move so fast, don't they? So a company needs to be agile. So they say, well, that's a good approach. So in this talk, we are not going to talk about this situation. We are going to talk about the idea of separation, right? So because my sample is the UK sample, right? So that's basically uh, the, the background of this. So let's just look at this. So, so we have, we've all agreed that we the idea of separating is, is a good one. And let's go with that one. Now, where the roles are separate, 
there could be a possibility that the chairperson and the CEO could decide to work very well together as individuals, right? So they collaborate, right? We've had cases in the past about very powerful CEOs who make decisions without even consulting the chairperson. And equally, we have also heard of very powerful chairpersons who, especially if they are founding chair, chair, chairpersons, they, they, they may say, look, this is, this is my company, I do whatever I want. Mr. CEO, stay there. So there could be a case of them collaborating or there could be a case of them competing in, in, in the way they do things. Or just no relationship at all, right? So those scenarios are possible. So this study wants to understand what actually happens when these guys cooperate very well. And what drives them, especially, to cooperate, right? What are the triggers that make them want to work uh, together very closely? But there's a case for cooperation. If these two guys cooperate, that's the chairman and the CEO, there's a lot to benefit for them, right? It's a mutual benef benefit uh, uh, they can derive. Uh, for example, they could have, they have a common goal, right? If, if you're looking at the UK, US, their common goal is to maximize shareholder value. They want to make profits so that shareholders can smile. And, and when they do that, they, 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 they gain reputation, right? And reputation is very important for, for CEOs and, 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 and board directors because when you reach your three years or four years of service in a company, you're going to move to another company. So if you have a good reputation, you know, when he was chairman of company A, he did amazing, right? So more companies will want to approach you and say, here is a job. So reputation will give you more in terms of future appointments. It will give you also financial reward. The CEO gets more with all of stock options, uh, bonuses, and so forth. And it will give you uh, the chairperson will also walk away with a, with a good amount of money. So there is a lot that they can actually gain from cooperation. So that's the case for cooperation, which I make in the paper. I have to write a very strong part to say, why, why am I interested in them cooperating? What is the argument behind, behind cooperating? When you write papers for academic journals, it's, it's a very complicated uh, business. You have to really, really be convincing that, look, there is a case for them cooperating here. So that's why I'm taking this area. It's an important subject to look at. So we go with the idea of uh, cooperation. And if we look at this, what do we know so far about this relationship? What does the literature tell us? What have the studies that have been done before tell us about this relationship between the CEO and the chair? Unfortunately, not much, right? Which is why I'm interested in the subject. The studies that have come out in the past have focused on whether the CEO and the board chair roles should be separated or, 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 or combined, uh, as I was saying before. We have loads and loads and loads of papers that have been written around that, that area. In fact, I expect some of my students to be reading that, those papers. Uh, and we also know that they have looked at, in cases where uh, the CEO and the chairman have separated, they've tried to look at the firm performance. But what they've not done is to look at the dynamics, right? They've not looked at the dynamics of these individuals who are actually working. They are human beings. How do they really get to work together? And uh, those who have tried to do it, uh, the likes of Kakabazi and Kakabazi and Barat, these are guys at, uh, at, uh, at Reading University, they, they, they have looked at the subject, but unfortunately, it has been a very descriptive uh, study. You know where they just write what they think without testing it. 
right? So in research terms, if you, if you write a narrative, what you think, it's, it's almost like an opinion. Okay, you're as good as writing something for the newspaper, and academics won't take it seriously. So for them to take you seriously, you must test it. So they've not done that. They've simply said, well, the relationship between the CEO and the, it's a sacred one. These are the words they use, sacred and secret one. Uh, and, and they end there. So I'm saying, look, you didn't do much. I want to take a step further and try to understand, when you say it's a sacred and secret one, how does it get to be like that in the first instance? And can we really use that relationship to determine <coughs> whether they do well or not? Okay, guys, so far so good? Are we all following this story? <coughs> I have not lost anyone somewhere? Very good. Right, so, that takes me to what we call the research gap. If you're doing a study, uh, you are researching a study, and I'm saying this for the benefit of the students who are here. First of all, read the literature that is around the area. Understand it. And identify what is actually missing. So what did I found missing? I found out that we don't have enough knowledge on how the CEO and the board, board chair's relationship forms. We don't know how it forms. We only know when they are appointed, right? Now, get me right, don't get me wrong there. You get the CEO in the position, you bring the chair, they come together. That is not a relationship yet. These guys have just been appointed. Now they start to understand each other, to see whether they can actually work well, to see whether there is a need to really cooperate. That's what I'm looking at. Particularly, what are the conditions under which that relationship gets stronger or weaker, right? So let's assume that relationship is a given to a certain extent, but it gets stronger or it gets weaker given a number of conditions. So those conditions are the ones this paper are trying to look at and try to measure. And we also don't know whether this relationship has got any impact on firm performance. So initially when I started writing this paper, I thought I would combine these two ideas in the same paper. As I was working on it, I just realized it's too much. So I'm, gonna, I'm splitting it. Uh, there are going to be two papers from there. The first part will just look at these conditions under which the relationship gets stronger or weaker, and then this will be a follow-up follow uh, follow study. So here I'll talk mostly about this, the, the first part, and then this one here will, 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 will come, come later when, when the first one is actually done. So that's the search question. Yes? So I, I'm assuming you are uh, talking about the chairman here as uh, executive or non-executive, but not independent, right? Right, because the chairman. There are cases which the chairman could be independent as well. Yeah, yeah. The chairman. The chairman. Uh, let's let's put it this way: the board chairman in the UK companies could never be executive, right? The board chairman comes from the non-executive directors. So as soon as you are uh, normally, what happens is some guys who if, suppose they were CEOs, founding members. If that's the scenario, they, when they retire, they they go across, they become the chairman. So we, we are not talking of executives here when we talk of chairman. The only executive between the two is what? The CEO. So you've got the CEO there and the chairman. Remember, the role of the chairman is to control this, this executive. That's, yeah, that's his main job, right? He gives advice, yes, but he must check to make sure that this guy does not, does not steal from the shareholders, right? The agent's problem. Which, which, which we saw in our, our lecture. So, so the chairman is a non-executive member, right? He could be independent. Yeah. 
or he could be connected, right? If he used to work for the company, that doesn't matter. But the important thing is, he is a non-executive director. Uh, so he, the chairman leads the non-executive directors, and the CEO leads the executive directors. Let me go back to that table again, so that it's clear to everybody. Uh, if we go here, so you see, uh, the chairman, although when the board sits together, the board sits with non-executive directors and executive directors together in the same room, right? In the UK system. Yeah. And who's chairing the, the meeting is the chairperson, right? But the chairman is in charge of this guy. That's where he belongs. Non-executive, sorry, uh, this guy is a non-executive director. That's his lot. And the CEO is leading the executive directors, right? Remember the executive directors are the finance director, HR director, marketing director, operations director, right? These are the, these are the executive directors, right? And these ones are part-timers, these are full-timers. The role of these guys, plus this guy, is to check on, on these two to see that they're actually performing their role very well, right? If something's not going well, they tell them you are going in the wrong direction, and we have known from the past that that role has not been done very well. But out of all this, I've just picked the key ones at the very top. Because you are bringing a team as a chair, and the CEO is bringing a team as, a, as, a, as the leader of the executives. So the need for them to cooperate is huge. Not just for themselves, even for the guys behind them. They, have a, they are leading two teams. So can you imagine, if the CEO and chair starts fighting, right? It means these guys also will be affected, right? Depending on their, their, their affiliation to, to their leaders. So assuming the CEO has, has got his guys behind him and the chair has got his guys behind him, then there's likely to be, to be problems there. That making sense? So cooperation becomes a good thing. Is that clear? Yeah. Very good. So let's move on. My, my, my point was if the chairman is in demand, that could add more limitations to, to the dynamics that you were talking about. Okay, okay, I get it. Right, so, is it clear now the research gaps, what I'm trying to understand uh, from this? Now, another thing that I must mention is that when we write academic papers, right? I keep saying this because potentially we could be having some PhD students here in the future from you guys, so I have to make sure that I, I really sell this well. So one of the things that we do, notice I said uh, when Kakabazi, Kakabazi and Bharat wrote a paper, I said it was very descriptive, it didn't, it didn't really strike academics as a good, good piece of study, right? Because it, was, it looked like a newspaper article. So one of the things that distinguishes academic work from newspaper articles is that we really draw our inspiration from theory, right? There must be a strong theoretical argument that underpins your, your argument. So, so far what I've been telling you is all talk. Where is the theory, right? Where do you draw the theory to really cement this argument? Now, that's what I'm going to tell you about now. I'll spend a few slides to talk about that theory, which really glues this study together. So this theory, right, comes from social psychology, right? It's not from economics. It's not from management. By the way, in management, we borrow a lot of theories from other areas. We borrow from sociology. We borrow from psychology. So this one here is borrowed from social psychology. Now, I'll tell you a bit about it. This theory is called social interdependence theory, right? It is about the idea that one individual 
works well with other individuals if they have some sort of connection between them. They are interdependent. Their actions affect each other. Right, so if you like, interdependence is the degree to which units or individuals affect each other. Right? So I lean on you, you lean on me. Now, there are two types of interdependence which have been explained in the literature. One is called positive interdependence. So by positive, we mean your success, right, depends on my success. And my success depends on your success. Now, take this scenario. If we decide to work on a project as a team, and we are told, look, guys, at the end of the year, you'll get a huge bonus if you perform up to a certain point. Now, there's every reason for us to work together very closely and support each other because if one of us does not make it to the level that is actually required, the management may say, one of you did not do enough, so we're not going to pay for you for the, 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 the bonus to you. So basically, it forces you to want to cooperate. So the success of someone is also your success, and their success is your success. Now, negative interdependence is the opposite. It is basically about my success is your failure, and your failure makes me smile, because that means I succeed. Now, I'll give you a scenario. Let, assume this. You go to a job interview. There's two of you, right? And you're told by the employer that, you know what, by the end of the day, without a doubt, we are going to appoint one guy between two of you, right? So now you're sitting there and waiting for your turn. What are you thinking? If that guy inside there does very well, I'm done, okay? So you want that guy to fail so that you, you succeed. And equally, they want you to fail so that they succeed. We call that negative interdependence. That is a relationship. You are impacting each other. But that relationship is a negative one. Does that make sense? So it forces you now to compete. So think about a situation where if you find yourself competing with a colleague at work, what you're actually doing there is negative interdependence. You're not, you not cooperating. But if you find yourself working together and saying, look, let's pull together, we need to do this together, then you are actually operating within the positive interdependence. Does that make sense? So a, a typical example that people often talk about when they talk of interdependence, is the idea of this, uh, a marriage, right? So it's, what does it say there? It says, sing or swim. We're in this together. One part to the marriage doesn't do their part, there's likely to be problems. So there is more to want to cooperate from that sense. Uh, just a bit of more information on that so that you know what I'm talking about. So if you talk of interdependence, uh, if it's cooperative, that's positive. That's, you're working together. If it's competitive, then that's negative. That's your, your negative interdependence. And if you are all just being individuals, individualistic, you're pulling in your direction, there's no connection at all, right? So your, 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 the success of one individual is not connected to you in any way, whether cooperatively or competitively, then you will say there is no interdependence and that's individualism, right? So. That scenario could also be possible between the CEO and the chair. When they just decide, you know what, I just do my thing in that way, and, and the CEO does his thing going on, no connection at all, then they are actually acting as individuals. It doesn't help the organization. Right, now, interaction patterns, how do they interact? It's promotive when you are cooperating. You are all helping each other. 
you know, the group assignment you're working on, the interaction is meant to be what? Cooperative and, and promotive, not oppositional, right? Because you are one team, okay? The moment you start saying, attacking each other, then you are moving up to the part which is actually negative cooperation. What about individualism? None of that. What about how effort to achieve? It's a high under cooperative. It's very low when you are competing in, in, a, in a team, and also very low when you are going as uh, individuals. The relationship there, positive, negative, and no relationship. So this summarizes the theory that we are using. We'll be talking more about this, because in, in, in a paper like this, the theory has to be very, very strong and at the middle of, of the study. So I think I've shown you that. So this is what I'm looking at. Now, it's very, very important for you guys to get. Now, here you've got the CEO goal attainment. This line defines the way the CEO is thinking and running his own thing, right? And this line here defines this board chair's goal attainment, right? So the, the board chair's goal attainment is looking at different positions that say, look, I think I'm achieving what I want. And on this slide, the CEO is saying, I think, yes, I'm achieving what I want, right? But in terms of cooperation, they must meet somewhere on this slide. So if the chairman is at point B, can you tell me what that means? If the chairman is sitting on point B, his thinking is on point B, everything he does is on point B, what does that mean? It's very individual, right? It's, there's no cooperation at all because there's no input from, from the CEO. Equally, if the CEO is here, it means he's doing his thing. This is where I may be very powerful CEO. Is, I don't care about the chairman. I am the executive man here. I will run this company the way I want. So again, there is no... It's almost individual there and individual there, right? But on this line, any point on this line, there is some sort of cooperation, right? Less and more of it. On this side, from here onwards, like this one, the cooperation is there, but there is more of the CEO making input than the, the chairman. <laughs> Equally, there is the same thing. This point C here, by the way, this is a 45 degree angle. So, a point C there, that is where they are putting equal amounts of commitment. There is maximum cooperation at that point. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. It's maximum cooperation. Now, I'm saying, in real life, you may not get that situation where everyone puts in 50, that one puts in 50. In real life, it may not happen, okay? There's bound to be one guy who does a little more, so I'm, I'm predicting that this zone here is still healthy for the organization, where the chairman is allowed a bit of being, so the CEO is allowed a bit of being, uh, 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 self-interested, if you like. And that side there, the, the board chair is also doing a bit of, but at least within that zone, the company is not going to go down. Now, the cases of Enron, right, which we have seen, the case of World Cup with, with, with failure, it means they would have not been at this. <coughs> Remember from the case that we looked at, the CEO was just doing his thing. Their chairman was just there as a figurehead, which means the operation was according to my theorization, it was on this, uh, on this part here. But this part here, we are saying, uh, if we can quantify this part here, we can actually tell the region where the company should be operating without uh, uh, problems. Is that making sense? Right, so, so that becomes shareholder value maximization interdependence. So the argument I'm making here is that this collaboration here, 
it's not about them as individuals. It is about the fact that they want to maximize shareholder value. They want to create wealth for the, for the shareholders, right? That's what brings them together. And this is the part, the effective zone, where they can actually create the most value, right, for the organization in terms of their cooperation, especially here, right? But as I said, that position may not be there, okay? Because we're talking of individuals. Uh, for somebody to end up being a CEO, must be strong-winged people, strong-minded people who have their own way of thinking. Equally, for someone to be a chairman, it means that they are also very strong-willed. That it's, in some cases, they may want to do things their own way. So we allow a bit of a bit of room in that in that direction. So this is this is this is the theorization as well extension. But going back to social interdependence theory, it argues that. People cooperate sometimes because they are induced to cooperate. To be induced is to be influenced. And that influence could be voluntary, but in some cases it could be actually coercive. You are pressurized, you are forced to cooperate by certain conditions, right? So social independence theory says sometimes people cooperate not because they want to, but because there are forces that pressurize them to cooperate. Right? So I argue that we have to look for those inducing qualities or factors that are likely to force the CEO and chairman to work together. What are those conditions? Right? <coughs> and also, they talk about under social uh, interdependence theory, they say attitudes are also very, very important. Right? And what is an attitude? Uh, give you a bit of a definition there so you, you understand what I mean. So, inducibility, if you like. Is the extent to which individuals cooperate or compete, and it could be determined by how well they are influenced or induced to be receptive to each other's suggestions, information, and ideas. Certain pressures have to make you to be receptive, to accept, like, okay, I think I didn't want to, but the conditions are such that we just have to. Right? Listen, you are about to sink. And uh, there's only one way you can be saved. There's two of you. You have to hold each other's hands and do something together. You may not want it, but the very situation that you are going to die, you're going to see, will make you want to say, we have no choice. That's an inducement, if you like. Right? Just to give a, a world example. As for attitudes, we know that individuals in a team cooperate or compete, depending on whether they have positive or negative attitudes towards each other. Right? Teamwork. Lots of studies in teamwork have shown that some people work well with others. Right? So we will come back to this, looking at those two, the attitudes and the inducement, and establish within a, the, the case of a corporation what would be those factors. Right? So far, so good? Are we following? Yeah. So if you can understand the theory part, that means this paper has been understood. So here I am, back again on that diagram. So under inducibility, I have a number of factors. Right. So the first factor I have there is, imagine a company has been performing poorly for the last three, four years, right? And you are in the papers all the time. This company is not doing very well. This company is not doing very well. Shareholders are complaining. That in itself, if you were the chairman, the CEO, is enough to say to yourselves, we really need to come together and do something, right? So. The beauty of that variable is we can actually measure it. We can look at 
how well the company has been performing. So I'm saying the first factor is the level of performance that the company has been having over the previous years, right? So if, you're, if you have been profitable for a very long time, you may decide, you know what, we will continue the way we've been doing. But if you are struggling, it will make you want to think about how well you should be proceeding. And the second one I'm looking at there is the intensity of competition. By the way, there is support from literature on all those points. Let me see if I can show you that. So in terms of the first one, uh, people's goals may be highly linked because they seek to overcome an obstacle together. So your obstacle there is the poor performance. It's been going on. And notice, don't forget, we are looking at shareholder value maximization, the creation of value for the shareholders. That is why you are there in the first instance. So anything that doesn't meet that is a huge obstacle. In fact, that's obstacle number one, right? So continuous poor performance will induce you to want to work together, right, as the CEO and chairman. And, and that is a measure we can, we can, we can, we can, we can get easily. The other one is, uh, as you saw there, is uh, intensity of competition. How competitive is the environment in which you're operating? Again, we have some literature that supports that thinking. Uh, intense competition from industry competitors may induce the CEO and board chair to work together better, right? So previous studies have shown that hyper-competitive environments, right, that are super competitive, they have been observed to enhance what is called socio-behavioral integration. Socio-behavioral integration is simply put the idea of a team coming together. You find yourselves when you are facing competition, right? You really know that if we don't do this, we will have a problem. So, uh, Hambry, uh, a, a professor from University of uh, Pennsylvania, has written a lot about, about that in terms of how people cooperate when they are in environments of competition. Now, this uh, idea of intensive competition also is supported by what we know from our corporate governance literature. There is a literature in corporate governance that says if a company is facing a lot of competition, the board's role, remember the board's role has got two main functions, right? One function is to provide advice to the executives. The other function is to monitor management. So studies have shown that when the situation is so rife that competition is high, the board stops the monitoring function and only does mostly the strategic advising function. So what does that tell us? It tells us that there is more cooperation when you are facing competition, right? And also possibly because competition is, is controlled enough. You don't need to be monitored anymore. If there's competition there, it, it's already doing the monitoring job, right? If you, if you want to show that you're not performing well, just beat the competition, and that is monitoring in, its, in, its, in itself. So basically, the board sees this, to be more controlling and moves towards the strategic advice. So basically, it talks about the chairman saying, look, I can suspend my monitoring idea now. Let's work together so that we achieve this. Is that, is that making sense? So that's number two uh, hypothesis from, uh, from uh, the inducibility uh, argument. The third one is institutional ownership, right? By institutional ownership, we mean those investors who are large, mutual funds, pension funds, who have the knowledge, who have the financial muscle to really pressurize you. And what do they want in investors? 
instrument investors, remember, it's a pot of money put together, right, and managed by uh, a, a few individuals for the benefit of, say, pensioners. So here at Birmingham, we put our money in the USS, right, which is our pension, our pension fund, and we want the managers to run that pension fund well, so that by the time we decide to be old, we will retire well. Is that making sense? So, so these institutional investors will pressurize companies to perform, right? So if they detect any relationship between the CEO and the chairman, that is not going very well. They are likely to say, please, do something. You, you, we are losing our money. Our customers, our clients will not have enough. So institutional investors really could pressurize. So these are the three. I could add a list of many variables. But as you know, in a study, you can only put so much, right? But this stands out quite clearly. Now, we go to the attitudes. What did we say attitude was? It is that condition that makes people think, do they want to work well together? Do they have a positive outlook towards each other? Now, on this one here, it's a very, very tricky one. I have gone to the literature of homophily. I don't know if you know what that means. Homophily is about... Uh, okay, to summarize, have you heard of the expression birds of the feather flock together? Right? You know about that expression? Right, so homophily is about the likeness, homo, like who, is about the likeness of, of individuals who are working together. So there it is, homophily, the tendency for people to have non-negative ties. Right? So we can actually put, to have positive ties with people who are similar to themselves, in socially significant ways. Now, what does that tell us? In the literature and corporate government, it tells us about the issues of diversity and non-diversity, right? <laughs> so, I bring here the arguments that uh, the idea that you have a CEO and chairman, suppose they have a huge gap in terms of their age, they may likely not have the kind of chemistry that would work very well for them. That's number one. Number two, educational background. The idea that one guy is highly educated, that one is less educated, or maybe, as the research has shown us, uh, uh, people have wanted to work with certain people who have gone to certain types of universities. Have you heard of that? Like, you, 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 the question is, did you go to Oxford or did you go to Cambridge to be in the old boys network? That sort of thing. So basically, people want to associate given certain social conditions. And most of those conditions come from the issue of diversity. Now, I say it's contentious. Why? Because there is a set of literature that says diversity is an amazing thing. Right? You've you come across that, right? Mm -hmm. Diversity is what gives you the best results. Why? Because different opinion, the ways of looking at different things. And another set of literature that says, no, no, no. It only leads to a wasting of time. Because people argue a lot before they, they really reach a decision. Right? So I'm using it, and I know uh, the review process. Because our papers go through what is called the review process. Other academics are giving your paper, they read it. So this is one area where I know if it falls in the hands of someone who believes in diversity, then I'm in trouble. But I'm going to write in such a way that I show that, look, it's about these two individuals. You know, when you talk of diversity, you're talking of teams. But these guys are not teams, right? It's one guy there, this is one guy there. They meet just the two of them. So the chemistry between the two of them could be moderated or be determined by how well they are close enough to each other on their demographic, 
attributes, right? So for example, age, gender, race, education, you name all personal attributes. The closer they are, I argue, the more likely they are likely to have a better chemistry and, and, and maybe cooperate. The far apart they are, uh, they are likely to, to not work very well. But the beauty of it is, once we get the data, we can test this. Suppose we find that no, the far apart they are, the better for the cooperation. Then we are contributing to the theory of diversity to say, look, yes, studies on that diversity are actually spot on. Even looking at the chairman, the CEO, you really get the same support. If we get the other way around, again, there is also a case to make. So basically, this is uh, what I am looking at in terms of the, the hypothesis. Four hypotheses. Oh, sorry, I, need, I should have shown you that. That's what we mean by based on the same feather. That's homophily, right? You, you flock together because you, 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 you have some, something in common, and, and, and you can make decisions much faster and more effective. That's one part of the theory says. Right, now, how am I going to carry out the study? Methodology, very important. We're going to look at a sample of 250 companies from the UK, the FUSI 250, right? The large firms, the very large ones are 100, the top 500, but it will extend another 150. And we, we check, uh, we, uh, we, look, we look at these companies over 10 years, right? So it could be 11 years there, from 2008 to 2018, so that we can establish a pattern. So there will be situations where the CEO or the chairman dropped. So we'll take care of that. Where they drop, we can put a dummy variable one, where they continue, oh sorry, dummy variable zero, and where they continue, we have one, and, and, and we, we, we can actually track who is coming in, who is coming out, right? By, 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 by that. And uh, so the first variable, that is the, what we call the dependent variable. Now, guys, this could be making waters for, for many people. The dependent variable, if you have any question, it is what you are trying to find. In this case, we are trying to find the level of cooperation. The level of cooperation between the CEO and the chairman is our dependent variable. It is decided by what we call independent variables, which are the intensity of competition, the poor performance, the attitude we saw with the gender and race and everything. These are the ones in an equation, right? You have an equation, you know, x, y equals to 2a plus 2b, whatever. So basically, that is what you are looking at by saying the dependent. So the dependent variable is going to be decided by this social value, uh, sorry, social interdependence theory, which comes from shareholder value maximization. Now the question you're going to ask me is, how do you get that value, mm -hmm. right? How do you establish that value? You know this value which I said uh, uh, I have here? Let me go back to this. That's the interesting part, the challenging part. How do you get these values here? Right? How do you establish that this at this point there is actually one? The correlation is one, right? The figure one because they are you are dividing equal attention by equal attention, so you must get the, the value of one there. And the other parts you are getting maybe zero point something. The maximum value you can get on this line is one. And the minimum you can get is zero, right? So your zero is here. So there will be zero point something, zero point something, but that's a zero, that's a zero because there's no cooperation. And that's a maximum one. And the rest of it is very fractional. So how do you get that value? 
Now this is where, again, this paper makes, breaks away from the traditional studies that have been done because it tries something very, very new. Now, we use what is called latent semantic analysis. Now, uh, because of how technology has developed, we, we can actually, by just looking at the text, not any, any words or anything, we can actually read someone's speech and be able to tell out what exactly they were saying using numbers. Right? That is that technology, latent semantic analysis. So, what I, what I plan to do here is, I plan to take the statements made by the CEO at the end of the year in the annual report, right? So the chairman makes a statement, and the CEO makes a statement. And these statements are reported year in, year out, right? So this technology here is so developed that you just take that speech, you take that speech, you plug it into the computer, Right? And it gives you the idea that they are saying the same things or not. Right? Whether their, their, their speeches are close enough. It gives you, again, the values start from zero up to one maximum, as, I, as, I, as, I, as we say that. So it, it really determines the correlation. Now, it's a technology which is developing all the time. Let me show you this uh, Delta Airlines. See that picture there? I, I, I took this, I actually saw this article while, while I was already here in Dubai, right? Two days ago I saw that. I thought, yeah, this will help me with my, with my presentation. So, what they're saying in this article here, the Financial Times, you guys want to read? The Financial Times is saying, evasive bosses mining their languages. So what they're saying is, bosses who evade certain questions. In the article they say, for example, if... If you ask a CEO a question, what are your plans, you know, for the next five years? If you hear the CEO starting by saying, that's a very good question. Be careful, they're about to, to dodge your, 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 your question and give you something else, okay? So this technology, they can actually determine exactly what they're saying. If they make a speech and these guys take it, they put it in the system, they can actually tell what he said, and the, that speech can, has got a relationship with, with the share price. Studies have shown that what they say can actually determine the way uh, shareholders react. I'll show you a, a bit of those studies later. So it has, this has also been used, this technology has been used to determine how certain individuals, like political leaders, who start maybe very well, and then they change course during their time of being in office. It has been able to detect at one point they changed their narrative, right? And then establish some of the factors around why they changed through just analyzing text, right? So it's a beautiful uh, 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 development because uh, a, a lot of stuff, they actually say a lot of stuff, 75% of the information that we receive comes through text and not figures, right? So that means without this technology, we are missing a lot of information we'd be picking from there in terms of the, the moons. So let me show you a bit of the uh, literature that has actually traced that. Because everything in the research is about justification. Uh, do you have reasons for it? Uh, do I have it somewhere? Let's see. Yeah, yes, this one here. The effectiveness of text mining. We call it text mining. So 
These guys here, LS2000, and this is when this technology had not even developed that much. They, they are accountants, these guys are accountants, Manchester University. They found that the chairman's statements that they make it over here contain salient, that is important information, highly associated with the firm's future financial status. Right? So what they say, if you can track them, you always find the relationship between what they said and the way the company performs. <coughs> Two weeks ago, that's the same article I was telling you, Morgan Stanley published findings after machine reading 135,000 uh, of its own research notes, just notes. And what they established was that they claimed it found a positive correlation between sentiment, words of feelings, in the response and how share performance, shares or shares perform subsequently, right? So if the chairman is putting in a way that shows feelings, they'll be able to detect that, how does it relate to share prices? So that's the, that's the technology I'm using to, to, to do that. So you take the text of the chairman, the text of the CEO, for each and every year, and, and, and test. Now, I'll tell you what I've done already. We have looked at the first 100 companies, right, to try and see whether we can get this correlation. Because there was one fear we had. Now, I'll, I'll say this to you. Maybe it's already sitting in your mind as a question. We had a fear that <coughs> what if these speeches are doctored, right? The speech of the chairman, they say, what if they're actually doctored? Like, there's one guy who writes both. Exactly. Right? That's what I was going to Yeah, so I'll answer you before you ask your question. So, so, so we, we thought about that, like, hey, well, yeah, it's a good idea, but what, what would be best is to, is, is what he says randomly, like we see him walking there, we catch him, and, and he says something. Then he's not, no one is going to really change that, okay? But the problem with that is you won't have enough incidents of that, right? And you won't have enough data over the years. So the, you're only left with this. So we, we, we tested this. First of all, remember those four guys I said, I, 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 I worked with? They said, yes, there is that element that they shouldn't be very wild. But seriously, the chairman does his own thing in terms of writing his speech and his, and his team because they, they, they want to show that they're also standing on their own. So there's evidence from these four guys that there is an element of closeness, but not entirely. So we said, no, no, there's not a problem. Let's start with the first 100 companies. <clears throat> so we, we, we tested this. So we were expecting not to see any variation between the species, especially if the CEO changes and the chairman. That was our trick. Let's look at the points where they change the chairman and the CEO. If we don't see any change, then we know seriously that these species 